And that's just shocking to think that one of the earliest secret codes in, in Adventism was quoting the Apocrypha. Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to a special episode of the Adventist History Podcast. We are going to be talking today about an area of Adventist history I, I really knew nothing about when I started this podcast. You can go back, listen to those early episodes, and you will find none of the subject that we're going to be talking about today. And, and my guess is you haven't heard about this either. Even though this idea has been circulating around scholarly circles for about 20 years at least now, uh, I it, it had never crossed my desk. I'd never figured this out. It's not in uh, any evidence history textbooks that I had read. At least I don't remember reading it. So what are we talking about? What is this subject today? Okay, take a seat, sit down, because today we're going to be talking about early Adventists and the Apocrypha, or those deuterocanonical books that sit in between the Old Testament and the New Testament in many, many, many Bibles. And my guest and my guide for this discussion is Matthew Cortman. Matthew, tell us about yourself. How did you come into this subject? What it is that what is it that you do lead us? Well, first, thank you so much for having me on here. Um, for those that don't know who I am, which is probably everyone, um, I'm a master's student over here in Connecticut at uh, Yale University's Divinity School. I'm specializing in the area of history uh, known as Second Temple Judaism, which really in a very complicated way, simply refers to the time that the Gospels were being written, Jesus was living, and the documents known as the Apocrypha were being written in Judea so and the surrounding areas. So that's basically me in a nutshell. I like strange things. I'm Adventist. Well, those two things can sometimes be the same. And huh. um, I'm happy to be on here to, you know, I don't know, necessarily guide you, but certainly have a great conversation about it. Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna guide us because you've actually published on this subject, and we're gonna get into that in just a minute. But for the sake of our listeners who are being, who are probably thinking, "Hey, I've heard of the Apocrypha. I've heard of these books in between the Old and New Testament. Can you give us just kind of a a primer, like who views these books as inspired? Because obviously, Adventists uh, today don't. Many Protestants today in America don't. But, I, but, but you would argue that a majority of Christians around the world do view these books as part of the biblical canon, right? So what kind of books are we talking about, and who believes in these books, that they're inspired and canonical? Sure. So probably some dictionary reference time would be a little helpful. Um, so like when we use the term apocrypha, we tend to, at least certainly in Protestant communities, we tend to refer to... Uh, certain books that other Christians believe are scripture um, or were included in the Bible or tried to be included in the Bible, which we don't accept. And in that respect, the term Apocrypha is relatively stable in that respect across lots of different Christian communities. The Catholics would use the same term the same way. The Orthodox will use the same term the same way. Where it gets tricky is that each community of Christians has a different idea of what is or does fall under that category of apocrypha. So for Protestants, typically what we consider apocrypha 
uh, and we use that term to refer to, is a specific collection of books, um, which if you buy a Bible and it says with Apocrypha, that's going to be the same collection of books almost every single time with that title. Whereas uh, many of those books are part of scripture for Catholics and Orthodox. So when they use the term Apocrypha, they're referring to only a couple of those books Protestants know, and a whole bunch of others that Protestants aren't even thinking about. Um, and again, the Orthodox don't have the exact same idea as the Catholics either, which means that again, even between different Orthodox churches, that term will be used subjectively by each group in their own way. So what kind of books are these? Uh, well, a quick listing of them, uh, the ones that Protestants are the most uh, likely to come into contact with or see included in their Bibles at Barnes & Noble, is going to be the books of Tobit, Judith, Baruch, Wisdom of Solomon. Uh, there's another book that goes by two titles in the King James Version. It's called Ecclesiasticus. In a lot of modern Bibles today, it's called Sirach. And uh, there's also books like First and Second Maccabees uh, and First and Second Esdras, and additional chapters to some of the books we already have, such as additional chapters to Daniel or additional chapters to Esther. Now, what's so interesting um, about this, of course, is that some of these books are, in fact, canonical or scripture for other Christians, such as the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches. So for the Catholic Church, books like Tobit, Judith, Sirach, etc., the Maccabees, they're, they're scripture. But books like First and Second Ezra are apocryphal. So in that sense, they would agree with Protestants. Um, Orthodox Christians view the Deuterocanon in a lesser light. So for them, their view of inspiration is that the book of Tobit is of authority, but less authority than the first canon. So in that respect, nothing can be taken from Tobit as scriptural value unless it agrees with something that's in the first canon. Um, and in that sense, you, it's kind of similar to how some Adventists use Ellen White. Ellen White is the deuteral is the, is the deuteral canon for Adventists. Is that what? <laughs> so let me let me start with this. I have here in front of me the Western Midnight Cry, Joshua V. Himes, publisher. January 14th, 1845, so just a few months after the Great Disappointment. Now, Himes, as many of our listeners will remember, is kind of like Miller's right-hand man, his, uh, his promoter, his hype man. That's what we'll call him. Himes was Miller's hype man. And, and so Himes, Himes has this, this article on the front page of, the, his, of his newspaper saying you know that he's basically looking for fulfillment of america in in bible prophecy and he can't find america anywhere in bible prophecy and and that seems strange to him america is a big super you know, well not a superpower then but this growing um nation that seem that is it's it's a new world and he thinks that this should be reflected somewhere in the bible and he finds a symbol he finds a prophecy in the bible in in the the second book of of esdras and he sees in here America, and he basically spends this whole this whole article defending the apocrypha from its critics, saying that this is inspired. Okay, now Himes is not an Adventist, but you and your research, Matthew, have found an, 
what, one or two references James White and Ellen White makes to the Apocrypha? What have you found as far as early Adventists and the Apocrypha? What's the connection there? Well, <clears throat> that's a great segue, definitely. Um, the Western Midnight Cry definitely is right at the heart of how the Apocrypha ends up in Seventh-day Adventism. And how it really starts, in a sense, is that you have to understand, and you really don't get the sense of it until you're reading these old documents, but the Millerite papers leading up to 1844, you find that everyone everywhere was pretty much attempting to come up with the same ideas as William Miller was, but through other means. And what I mean by that is that everybody did not, in the Millerite movement, agree with or completely adhere to what William Miller was proposing in every respect that he did. You will find many times in these papers where Millerites are writing in about other ways to get the dates. In fact, one of the greatest ones, and I have to go back and try to find it again, but it was years ago while I was searching uh, for some of this research, somebody, one Millerite actually predicted that Jesus might come in 2012. And he did, he, he did all of this, uh, this uh, research, and I, I saw that, unfortunately, it was 2014, 13, and I, I said to myself, darn it, if only I had done this a little earlier with the Mayan prophecies and everything going on, this would have made a great Review and Herald article. Um, yeah, but yes. the thing is, is that ultimately um, what you saw there is that different Millerites were constantly trying to find ways to <clears throat> either question what William Miller was doing, just in case he was wrong, or to try and understand other ways to get to the same dates through other prophecies. Um, and what's really interesting about that is that some of these Millerites started to look at Second Esdras, because in the Apocrypha, other than books like Tobit and Maccabees, which are narrative, or Wisdom of Solomon and Sirach, which are poetic, like Proverbs, um, the book of Second Esdras is the only work of prophecy that was contained in the King James Bible collection of the Apocrypha. So for the Millerites, that immediately got their attention to it. What's really funny about that is that because Second Esdra was not considered scripture by the Catholic Church, and because even most Orthodox churches didn't believe it, most Protestants hated that book more than any other. And partly because it was usually the wackiest people in history that were drawn to it because it was prophetic. Um, and so here you had these early Millerites starting to get these ideas of, well, why don't we look, if the end of the world is nigh, why don't we look at Second Ezra? Because here's this collection of prophecies that everyone's ignored. It's, it's, it's been ignored, and that probably means it's right. Right. That was part of the logic that was going on there is if this has been ignored, God must or might have really good truths in it. And of course, um, the fact that the Catholic Church rejected it for some was a, was a pretty good endorsement. It was like, well, OK, well, you know, the other books got accepted, but this one didn't. So there must be something here they didn't like. And you know how the sort of conspiratorial thinking goes. So it got an interest in the book for Millerites that it wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And uh, several individuals came up with ways of how to take one of the prophecies in the book about an eagle rising from the sea and to use it to argue for the date that, Miller, uh, that William Miller was proposing for Jesus to return. 
And, uh, and in so doing that, and there was this whole elaborate scheme about being able to predict which president was going to get assassinated, and, and this was gathering a lot of steam in, in Millerism. When William Miller's prophecy did not happen and the great disappointment occurred, enthusiasm for Second Ezra did not technically disappear because of the fact that um, when Seventh-day Adventism started to rise and uh, you had these early Adventists, uh, our forebears, starting to look at things, a lot of them had come out from those groups that were discussing Second Ezra, and they all had Bibles that had it. Now, the earliest uh, two comments we can find on this, there's, there's comments from like Joseph Bates, who in like 1847 or 1849, that Joseph Bates writes that uh, the book of Second Ezra can probably benefit nobody else but Seventh-day Adventists, uh, because, the Sabbatarian Adventists, because in his mind, it was a special book that God had intended just for the, the wise. And um, you see this in Ellen White very early on in two visions. And this is going to be interesting for some people listening, partly because of the fact that these two visions were kept unpublished quite a long time. So one of them is from January, I think it's January 1850. And uh, Ellen White says, uh, writing about a vision that she saw that the Apocrypha was for the wise uh, and that those who wanted understanding should, should know about it. And that was a really, really surprising quote, which did not get released publicly until the 1980s. Yeah, 1980s. Um, it was around the same time there was an individual named Ronald Graybill who was doing research on this issue. He was the first person to try. And uh, because of him and other people asking about some information regarding this, that quote was eventually released. Now, what the White Estate did not do is reveal that there was another more specific quote taken from a transcript of Ellen White having a vision a few months prior that they also had in their collection. And that was released only in 2014, 2015. So really, really recently. And that was really fascinating that during the time I was doing my research on this, that quote ended up getting released. Um, so in that one, taken right before she said that the Apocrypha was for the wise of the last days, she actually references, as she's walking around the room with a Bible, she references the Apocrypha as the Word of God, calls it the Word of God, says that the agents of Satan are trying to take it away from the Bible, and that uh, they think they're doing good, but it's evil. And uh, she basically says to the small Adventists that were gathered in the home with her, uh, keep the Apocrypha close to your heart, keep it close to your heart. It's a really radical statement and somewhat ethically questionable why it was never released before for, for other Adventist scholars to discuss. But part of it, you can imagine, is just that so, to so many Adventists, that sounds outrageously crazy. Where does that come from? Left field. And the truth is, it's because we're so separated from the time period and the culture that 
Protestants were living in in those in those times, like 1840, 1850, 1860, that it seems outrageous to us, but it wasn't too outrageous back then. It made sense. So at that time, uh, about 1827-26, there was a controversy going on with the British and Foreign Bible Society, and they were basically uh, debating about whether it was right to include the Apocrypha in editions of the Bible sent out for missionary work, whether to America or other countries in Europe. And it became very ugly, and people were split on it, because those who were in favor of the Apocrypha being included, because it had been included for all of Christian history uh, in various ways. I mean, think about it from that perspective, if you're trying to imagine this, these books had been in just about every single Bible for almost you know, 17, 1800 years straight, including all of Protestantism, the reformers drew on these books, not a, a very small minority, actually, of reformers actually rejected them uh, outright, every single one, even Luther thought that certain books in the Apocrypha, he considered uh, actually being worthwhile canonically. And so these people at the British and Foreign Bible Society were really caught in a twist, because Protestants had never made formal decisions on this canonical question. It had kind of been pushed off, pushed off. And so they didn't want to say they were canonical because they hadn't really given thought to that issue, but they didn't want them to go away. But there was an increasing worry amongst the conservatives that basically these books were getting a free sort of inroad. They were being allowed uh, an authority uh, presumption because they're included in scripture. So the two sides fought and eventually a decision was reached that said that Bibles would no longer be uh, would no longer be printed with them. And because of that and they said it was primarily for financial reasons so they didn't have to pay more money to print more paper, but ultimately that decision had huge shockwaves because suddenly now most Bibles coming out new didn't have the apocrypha in them. And so the real reason why today Protestants don't realize the Apocrypha used to be in the old King James Bibles is because of that decision that was reached. And eventually, the only people who had them by 1910 were grandmas and grandpas that had the old big family Bible. And when those eventually were too old and no one used them, most Bibles no longer had the books. So for the early Adventists who were in the midst of this, and Ellen White specifically, it was a terrifying uh, sort of situation in which suddenly you were being told that books that used to be in your Bible, which you used to have the freedom to talk about and discuss, were suddenly going to be taken out and just thrown away. So in many ways, I think Ellen White's comments have to be understood in that context for her. She is viewing uh, a stable Bible that is suddenly having things taken out of it. And whether or not people disagree on the canonicity of those books, I can understand why she might be afraid that if you can take Tobit out after 1700 years, is it really too far a stretch to throw out Daniel or Revelation? So in your opinion, what kind of remains for future research into this area? Like what questions need to be solved still? I think like interesting questions that are perhaps not questions about the history per se, but the history and how it affects our theology. Those questions are definitely wide open and still needing to be evaluated by a lot of people. And that is to say, 
if the Adventist church has had this mixed relationship with the Apocrypha, if Ellen White is only known on record to have endorsed the Apocrypha in vision two times or, or three, um, and she never took it back, never, never taught against it, and the Adventist church has never clarified its view on the canon. It creates a very interesting sticky situation for Adventist theologians who are looking at this history, because we may have lived in practice for almost 100 years now where we don't treat the Apocrypha in that way, but we come from a heritage in which everyone who founded us did and widely endorsed at least one or two of the books, if not the whole collection. Which creates a, a really fascinating question. What then is the canon for Adventists? Yes, there's the, there's the canon that is used. There's the canon we're actively living out. But that doesn't make scripture. That doesn't necessarily say then this is scripture and that's not because we don't use it. Uh, that may be true as a community, but it doesn't tell us what we believe doctrinally about these things. And of course, that opens up really confusing questions uh, in regards to Ellen White's usage of these materials. Because if you have Ellen White endorsing them, and let's say the church makes the decision that it was right that we don't endorse them and that we're against them, that puts the church at strict odds then with these comments by Ellen White. And then that would open up all kinds of interesting conundrums regarding inspiration and how does the church view Ellen White? And can Ellen White be right or wrong on an issue of this great importance? And so uh, you can see how this is an issue that while it looks obscure and fascinating as just a historical piece, it has huge implications for how people in Adventism view Ellen White, how they view Adventism in relationship to Protestant history, and what we mean when we say we're a Bible-based faith. What I imagine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what I imagine that's kind of frustrating about this subject is Obviously, the pioneers talked more about the Apocrypha than many of us are comfortable with today as Adventists. And, and yet, they didn't talk about it. They didn't, they didn't clearly define how they saw the Apocrypha. They, they recommended it. Obviously, you have that, that uh, statement from Ella White uh, talking about it uh, being ripped from the Bible, you know, as the work of Satan. And yet, if they viewed it as Catholics viewed it, we might expect it to be relied upon more. We, we might expect it to be emphasized more. Uh, I mean, they obviously allowed writers to write against it in the review. And, yes, and, definitely. It was, it was an allowed topic for debate and discussion, always. So that's, that's what's just so interesting. And we have this with a number of topics in Adventist history. Um, you know, like the, like the, like, like, especially with Christology or the Trinity, I mean, you have this where like, there's a kind of an open forum, but you would expect more friction than you actually find. I mean, okay. So you, you noted at the end of your spectrum article that came out last year, uh, a quote from 1918, where, where a professor is, is recommending that students go buy a set of the Apocrypha. This was in the Christian educator in September, 1918. Right, recommending that they that they go that they secure a copy of the apocrypha and read part of it to the class, and yet I mean for the sixth graders that? for what? sixth grade. Oh wow, 
Yeah. This was for sixth grade. I just that's that's the really funny yeah. part about this. It's not a high school curriculum. This is sixth right. grade. Get them when they're young. Train right. them. Right. And, and and yet I have a North Pacific Union Gleaner article from 1907 open here. And it's a really, really, really long article arguing that the Apocrypha should be rejected. Okay, so usually when you have this in a church, you, you expect some kind of conflict, right? I mean, you expect people to, right. to kind of butt heads over this. Is there evidence of a conflict? I mean, is this something they argued over? It's almost, it's just almost like the nature of Christ where you have all of this kind of prominent semi-Arianism in the early days, and Ellen White maybe as a, as a closet Trinitarian of some, of some sort, and yet no friction. And it's kind of frustrating. You look back and you're like, that's a big deal to us today. Okay, that's like in the first few of our fundamental beliefs today. <laughs> and you all never argued about that. Like, why? Like, no evidence of James and Ellen White like going at it about the Trinity or, or, or the nature of Christ or right. I mean, and, and maybe you kind of expect something like that with the apocrypha. Like you guys were just free to disagree and nobody made that like a point of contention. Nobody took it personally. Nobody's like, hey, we need to get together and hash this out. Let's present a bunch of views and, and solve it. It just that's what's so baffling and fascinating about this subject to me. No, it, it definitely is. And what's fast, what's more fascinating is your your intuition is is really right. There is, as far as I know, no record of one Adventist going after another Adventist on this issue. As far as I know, as much as there were articles written by people against the Apocrypha and many more for it. Nobody ever references one person or the other and is like, so-and-so is wrong, right? This isn't that sort of an issue. Nobody comes after each other for this sort of topic. They just make their general points or their disdain or their affirmations. But what's fascinating is like you're referencing 1907 and, and, and the article. What's really amazing is in 19, between that period of 1907 and 1910, you have numerous articles in the Signs of the Times in which in the editorial section, the editors of the signs are responding to questions by people regarding the Apocrypha. And mainly what it shows you is that because the Bibles are starting to lack it, some people are starting to ask, well, why did Ellen White reference this? Or why, why I've heard about this book, what's going on regarding that? And what the editors of the signs wrote is really fascinating in that they tell their readers again and again that many in the church's authority believe that one or more of the books of the Apocrypha are definitely scripture or are definitely inspired. And what's really fascinating in that it gives you a glimpse that this is an issue in which you had Adventists privately very strongly believing in the canonical authority of some of these works. Mostly, I believe it's Second Ezra that had the most interest because it was prophetic. But at the same time, it's not, it's an issue people talk about out loud, but at the same time, it's not something that is like blowing up into contention. So you have J.N. Andrews, you know, the man responsible for the name of our seminary, and he, uh, he wrote a, a sermon on the book of Tobit, which was published in the review, uh, you know, to illustrate why it was good for charity uh, to give and stuff. And he thought that Tobit was the best example to give for it. And so you see this strange, positive, and yet ambiguous relationship 
going on. Now, to your question regarding outright affirmation, right? Not just, I don't know what the status of this is, such as the, the, 19, the 1857 article in the review, which where James White and the other editors said, well, we're not sure uh, what the status of their inspiration is, but we encourage you to read them, right? There's that statement. But there are other statements which kind of go the other way. Obviously, I referenced the Sign of the Times editors referencing as late as 1910 about people believing their scripture. Um, but there's others. So in 1849, uh, I mentioned that Ellen White had that vision, uh, which is recorded in a transcript. I think it's Manuscript 5, 1849. And it's a very strange, strange piece of work, if you ever read it. She sounds very different in her younger state. But she goes ahead and, uh, you know, it's not just that she says it's the work of Satan to tear out it, but she actually says in reference to the Apocrypha that it's the word of God and references the word of God in reflection on it. And it's interesting that that's in vision. And then later again, reflecting on a vision, she's referencing the Apocryphas for the wise in January following that. And her first vision, when she describes it and wrote it out for the day star, she's quoting from the Apocrypha. So you see what's very fascinating is the only times Ellen White referenced the Apocrypha is in the context, explicitly referencing it, is in the context of visions, which is an interesting kind of note to that. When you look at how some early Adventists uh, reference these works and talk about them, they will usually, mainly just looking at Second Esdras, they will make reference to it as a book of real prophecy. Um, and when they do, though, and this seems to be the key to all of this, when they do, they make claims about the Apocrypha as uniquely important to Seventh-day Adventists. That, you know, according to, uh, to one of our earliest Adventist historians, we had early Adventists quote one part, a question from the book of Second Esdra. And then you would know if the person was Adventist because they'd quote you the answer from the book of Second Esdra. And that's just shocking to think that one of the earliest secret codes in, in Adventism was quoting the Apocrypha. And that's how you would know if they were Seventh-day Adventist. Wow. That really takes you back and makes you go, whoa, like this is a full-on culture about the Apocrypha that has literally just disappeared. And so there really are, in a sense, two Adventisms when it comes to the canon, the Adventism before Ellen White's death and the Adventism following. And it's very yeah. strange for us now to look back and go, this is a whole other faith. Yeah. When you start emphasizing these issues, it feels like it's a whole different world. Fascinating, fascinating. So, I mean, now, of course, we can tell if you're Adventist. We ask you how many, how many big Franks are in a can. Um, <laughs> we, we found our, we have, we still have codes. I mean, you know, people shouldn't think that's a sensational statement. We have, we have tells. Like, if you've ever met somebody, you're like, okay, this person talked about Sabbath. Are they Jewish? Are they one of these other minority Christian groups? Or maybe they're Adventist. And you, you try to find like a smooth way in the conversation. To, to tell whether they're like we, we, we have we have giveaways we have we're like we're looking for signs with each other to tell what kind of an avenue they are that's that's not a strange thing it just occurs to me that i mean early adventism is in a very creative phase where they're open to a lot of ideas they are especially valuing uh books metaphors 
ideas, or at least maybe not value. Valuing is too strong a word. They're open to books, metaphors, ideas, imagery that perhaps is being discounted by other Christians because they're, they're you know, like they're trying to complete this collection of truth. And obviously, if other churches all have this truth, then there wouldn't be any need for Adventism. You know, True. so they're, so they're, they're looking, they're looking for stuff. They're trying to collect stuff. So, it, it, you know, maybe it, it's indeed very natural for them to look to the Apocrypha early on and say, is there something here that most of our Protestant brothers and sisters have missed all this time? I think an important, like, kind of like an asterisk to that point that you're making is the fact that when you say like our other Protestant brothers and sisters are missing, right? That really only refers to the time in which the Adventists are living. Because yeah. if you go back 100 more years before that, and you start looking at, at, at Protestantism in the 1700s, 1600s, 1500s, right? Uh, suddenly, now the whole picture changes. Because while unfortunately many people today come to think that the Apocrypha was something that Martin Luther rejected or that the Protestant reformers were against the uh, decision of the Catholic Church in canonizing some of these works, uh, the truth of the matter is it was far more complicated for the Protestants who were doing this. Martin Luther uh, publicly stated he believed First Maccabees was scripture and canonical, and he thought it should be personally. He just wasn't ready to make that decision on behalf of everybody. Uh, he thought that if he said that he thought that the book of uh, Tobit and Judith, if it could be proven historical, was properly scripture. Uh, so when you start looking, John Calvin, he believed that the apocryphal book of Baruch was scripture and canonical, and that the other one should be thrown away, but Baruch should be kept. And you see this trend with lots of Protestant reformers where they weren't looking at the Apocrypha as a collection, they were looking at it as like a proving ground, as if it was a place to keep things you weren't sure about, and then figure it out and keep what was good and throw the rest away. But what ended up happening, it seems, is that no decisions were ever made like the Catholic Church did. Protestants just kept sort of pushing off the question of how do we know if one is good or one is not? And so it just sort of over time becomes this section in the middle of your Bible that no one ever made decisions on, but everybody felt ambiguous about. And I think that's important to realize that like in the earlier years of Protestantism, having these opinions on the Apocrypha was quite normal, and we've forgotten that. And so it's interesting that Adventists in their early period are simply returning back to those same attitudes that the earliest Protestants had, uh, but which had slowly died out with the rest of Protestants that were around them. And unfortunately, as far as I can tell, when Adventism let it fade out by 1920, they were the last denomination in Protestantism to do that. So one could say that it would be surprising to many conservative Protestants today that how much even the Reformers were at least open reading, you know, they saw value in the Apocrypha. But, I mean, basically for 500 years, Protestants have never achieved a consensus on what to do with it. Let me just close with this question, if somebody who's listening to this is intrigued by this, where where might they go to find out more about Adventist and the Apocrypha? Like what is there like, I know you've written some articles, you, re you keep referencing the Spectrum article you published last year. Uh, where's a good starting spot? Is it your article? Is it somebody else's? I, I honestly wish there were more resources on this uh, personally. 
it's unfortunate that Adventism has no, um, really no official uh, Adventist resources for handling these questions regarding the Apocrypha, mainly because for so long, we've forgotten that it was even a question in our history. So for many Adventists, it just seems like a non-issue, something that there's no reason to have Adventist resources for. So unfortunately, there's a real dirge of, of information here. Uh, if somebody was really interested and wanted to like look up these topics, um, they should probably get a full overview of the history regarding it. Um, an easy way to do that might be to read both uh, Ronald Graybill's original article that was published in Adventist Heritage in the 1980s. It's a little outdated currently uh, and limited in its scope, so it can't be completely taken at face value. But you could read that article first and then read my article published last year in Spectrum, uh, which is called Adventism's, uh, Adventism's Hidden Book, um, A Brief History of the Apocrypha. That article uh, would be fine and a good place to supplement Graybill, and you'll have a good overview of the history. Unfortunately, after that point, it gets a little iffy because um, there are some articles, for instance, written by Dennis Fortine. But when he wrote those articles, both his encyclopedia entry for uh, the LNG White Encyclopedia, as well as an online article, I think it was for the review. Unfortunately, when he did that, um, some of those quotes that I've referenced by Ellen White, uh, such as her referencing the Apocrypha as the Word of God, were not released yet. So there is unfortunately currently a period in which this podcast itself is one of the best places for people to start with hearing information about this. Uh, Matthew, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out, sharing a bit of your resource, your, your research and your passion with us um, and kind of shining some light. What I love is that so many of the, the new generations of Adventist historians, are, they're finding their, their niche. They're, you know, whether it's Michael Campbell in 1919 or, or you with the Apocrypha. And I, I know you guys all have wide ranging interests, but I just, I really appreciate this, this passion to keep digging deeper. Uh, we kind of have like the general story of Adventist history, and yet it's just like not a year goes by that somebody isn't discovering something that just makes that story much more detailed, fleshes it out, adds rich layers of complexity, and, and just kind of humanizes uh, the people that we're talking about in Avenus history. So really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for sharing with me. And if I encourage everyone here who's listening, if you want to get into this to topic, why don't you just go ahead and start with, with Matthew's article for Spectrum. It was published in 2018 volume 46 issue number one and there you can get a nice survey of uh of where he's at in his research matthew again thank you so much for joining me i really thank you for you know allowing me to have this conversation with you and i i hope that going forward uh more people will become aware of not only like our history but also our ongoing history still with people who do work in it and i really appreciate it thank you all right. Thank you very much. Appreciate you giving the shout outs to other Adventists out there who are working in the field. For our listeners, this is one of many special episodes that we are recording and editing and releasing these days. So stay tuned. You're going to find some other cool stuff coming in the weeks ahead. We will see you next time.